Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Culture Bunker, your weekend pop culture newsletter. I'm Alex Andreu. And I'm Sean Pattenden. On this week's show, we are delighted to have with us Madness frontman Suggs, here to talk about everything nutty. We're also watching Marvel's latest series, Hawkeye. Was it a 19 on a D20 or a critical fumble? And all you need is another Beatles documentary. <laughs> we sample Peter Jackson's new epic on their Twickenham sessions, Get Back. Plus, The Italian Job. Adam Driver, Lady Gaga and Al Pacino all star in Ridley Scott's House of Gucci. But what did film critic Linda Marrick and I make of it? All this and more in today's Culture Bunker. Welcome once more to the Culture Bunker. We are over the moon to have the legend that is Madness singer Graham Suggs McPherson with us today. Hello, Suggs. How are you? Where are you dialing in from? Yes. Good morning. Where good are day. you at the moment? I'm in Whitstable, down by the seaside. Amazing. You're just about to embark on the Madness Christmas tour, aren't you? We are indeed. What's touring predicted to be like this year? It's the first time in a few years you've done it, I take it. Yes, certainly is. Yes, yes. I mean, this is the fourth time I think this tour was postponed. So I sort of gave up being optimistic around 2020 <laughs> and a half. But we're finally here. The moment has arrived. We did one festival in Portsmouth a couple of weeks ago, and it was really was like a packet of firecrackers. Yeah, it was amazing. I think the uh, atmosphere is going to be quite hot and sweaty, I should imagine. How was your annual Minehead uh, House of Fun weekend? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what does that entail? A pound or two of flesh. <laughs> <laughs> and half of my brain cells. Yeah, um, yeah. for those who don't know, we take over the Butlins in Minehead for, for a weekend every year. We call it House of Fun. And it is, it is a House of Fun. Yeah, it was fantastic. The atmosphere was amazing. I'm unfortunately, I normally go out and see, because we curate the whole weekend, so there's lots of our friends and acts and DJs, but we weren't allowed to mingle due to insurance, COVID, cobbler's business, whatever it is you call it nowadays. But it was great, yeah, thanks. Wonderful. I once saw Status Quo playing that Butlins in Minehead. Please don't tell me it was like that. (laughs) (laughs) Bless them and all, but never mind. (laughs) Also joining us today, we have tech writer and journalist. He's currently audience writer at the Daily Star. He's also a former professional pop musician. It's Michael Moran. Hello, Michael. Good day to you listeners. (laughs) How are you? (laughs) I'm fine. I'm warm. Good. Are you at the stage where you're looking back at the year? What have been the most engaging stories you've been telling over the past 12 months for your readership? Well, I'll tell you the most kind of uncontrollable story I told in the last couple of months. We've done this, you know, newsletters are a big deal in newspapers. And so to kickstart our new all things space newsletter, I wrote a whole load of features about space mm-hmm. and space exploration, UFOs, all that, the whole schmear of that. And normally, with these things, when you're dealing with a scientist or somebody responsible, a Mm grown-up, you have to kind of tease out the mad bit that's going to go in the headline, that's going Mm. to get rid of excited. And you have to kind of – it's a – there's a little game you play where you you kind of – you do it. You have to look like you're doing the homework and be responsible. But then I was talking to this guy from SETI who was expecting to have to play the game with and have to be responsible and not be too hysterical. He was really hysterical. <laughs> he started telling me that aliens were going to invade us and kill us all. Oh. And I was thinking, mate, mate, that's my job. <laughs> Chill out, son. He was going absolutely feral. You had to calm him down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't remember which one of us was supposed to be the grown up. It was insane. You still- anyway, thanks, Seth. It was, it was a good day. <laughs> Crikey, my heart is beating faster than ever. They're going to kill us all, man. But you, you're also, you, you keep dipping your toe in with culture. Are you compiling any albums of the year? Are you doing any good, I don't good really, stuff? I don't really do the music stuff. Mm. And in fact, um, on a personal note, Pop Pickers, uh, I had so much holiday left this year because of this weird year it's been. Mm. I'm taking virtually the rest of the year off. I've spent most well, of- then you can just listen to music. I'm going to. Watch me. Yeah, wonderful. Well, before we move on... <laughs> A small reminder, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker and Patreon. That means episodes in politics, science, pop culture and more every day. We're still taking music requests for songs to play on the show. Suggest something in the comments on our Patreon page and post a link to the song. Some of you have already posted some choices and we'll get on to them soon. 
We'll see what we can clear and play. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. He's played on the roof of Buckingham Palace for the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. He's also played at the closing ceremony of the London Olympic Games in 2012. He may have toured the land with his spoken word memoir performances, released solo albums, but he's also been the lead singer of English Institution Madness for around 44 years. I'm sure he's gulping at the thought. <laughs> As a previously fully paid up member of the Madness Information Service, yes, that's me, I got the quarterly fanzine when I was a kid, <laughs> Suggs. It's a delight and a privilege to welcome Graham McPherson, the artist also known as Suggs, <laughs> Welcome to the Culture Bunker. We're going to listen to Bed and Breakfast Man from 1979 to fling us back to the old days and then we'll talk to you, Suggs, after that. Oh, that was the Bed and Breakfast Man. Bed and Breakfast Man there, from the first album. Suggs, where did you find your lyrical inspiration in the early days for tracks such as that? Mostly I was inspired by Ray Davis, you know. I mean, I didn't have the greatest singing voice, and it just occurred to me also that I liked the idea of singing in my own vernacular. And Ian Dewey, obviously, is the very obvious one, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. But these were people who weren't singing in in Cod American accents. Not that I'm completely averse to Cod American (laughs) accents, but it didn't really suit the, the limited vocal range that I had. Um, lyrically, yeah, the same, really. I like I like the way that Ray Davis and indeed Ian Jury wrote about the smaller inconsequential things of everyday life and, and made them, you know, almost cinematic. And so those two, I suppose, were the biggest, yeah. Yeah, and also they're London boys, aren't they? To, to coin well, this phrase. is it, yeah. yes. This is it. Yes. And a bit of Robert, bit of Robert Wyatt, actually, as oh, well. Oh, great. You know, I could find easy to forget, but you know, he was definitely in that firmament of mm. people singing in their own vernacular and about ordinary life. Mm-hmm. It also, um, Bed and Breakfast Man in particular, reminds me of The Ginger Man by J.P. Don Levy. Was there a point yeah. where you ever, with these influences, that it wasn't just music, but you were taking from other things as well, such as books, comics or TV? Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, for sure, we all read. I mean, I... I I was pretty useless at school, but my mum was a voracious reader, so that really saved me. And that, you know, obviously gave me the tools to be able to write songs. But Graham Greene was a big favourite of mine. Yeah, for sure, yeah. So you can hear things like, you know, characters from, from Brighton Rock, for sure, in things like The Better Breakfast Man. The other things were uh, Samuel Beckett, ironically, we really got into. How amazing. Because, <clears throat> yeah, the, the, the play, what's the one... It's Max Wall, and he's, and he's just sitting there with a tape recorder going... Oh, Crap's Last Tape. Ah, oh, yeah. Crap's Last Tape. Amazing, yes. It's a wonderful play. And there's something in that, you know, and the surreality of that. And also, Tommy Cooper was a big favourite. So, And it was it was interesting to discover that, that Sam, um, Samuel Beckett was a big fan of Tommy Cooper, and that surreality, which I think certainly informed some of the stuff that we did, and certainly the videos that we made were very much informed by that. Surreal, surreal comedy, black comedy. You also had early success. I mean, you were barely out of school, really. And we um, yeah. talked about the Before We Was We book, which is fantastic on the show last year or the year before. And it is all about Lee going into Lindsay, to, breaking into Lindsay DePaul's house and things like that. <laughs> um, what was it like? So this, I, mean, comfort. <laughs> I mean, it almost seemed like to us, it's an overnight success for you. And you, as I say, you're barely out of your baggy trousers. What was it like being so young and being so famous, Suggs? It, it, was, it was odd, you know, it was very odd. It, it was quite quick. I mean, we had paid some of what they call the Jews, you know, playing pubs and stuff. But we only just recorded a few demos when we bumped into the specials. And, and Jerry Demos, of course, who's starting Two Tone Records, heard the prints and said, you know, do you want to put that out? And, and it really was a, a shock. Um a, to make a record, and B, it started to become successful, and then we were on top of the pops, and it sort of didn't stop from there on. Yeah. But it was kind of bizarre, yeah, to have come from, you know, really the backwaters of nowhere to, to, to this huge trajectory in, in, in such quick fashion. And I remember, we're after about 
three or so years, we were starting to get a bit weary, you know. It was also, we'd made a rod for our own back by being this really sort of jocular, you know, outwardly um, energetic band. And everywhere we went, they were expecting us to dress up and be stupid, which we like doing, but when it becomes a sort of full-time job, it mm. loses its mm. novelty. Yes. So, and in the end, Michael keyboard player, I think around 1984 or five, decided he'd had enough and went off to live in Holland. And and it was kind of a relief for all of us, really. We'd all had young children, and I think we all needed a break. I mean, nowadays, you know, people talk, talk about that. You, you, you can take a break nowadays. But then we were still sort of in the era of the 60s where bands were supposed to keep going and going and going and going until they died in case you lost your place in the pop chart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've got to have a single out every couple of months. Yes, yes. Do you think Madness were a product of their time, though, from reading the book Before We Was We? The school system, your fractured home lives, there's something very 70s about it, that you came from that particular time and that particular part of North London, which I know really, really well. My my son went to loads of schools that you, your band members went to, so it's quite weird to see that. Do you think you were a product of your time? Could there be in madness now? Well, that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we would have got right through very many stages of X Factor. Then, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> so, you would have been I nicking think, all uh, the, the, you know, the stuff like stage, <laughs> stealing Simon Cowell's trousers. I would imagine. Simon Cowell's face. Yeah, we'd have probably hit him. <laughs> but, um, no, 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 that's not right. No, no, no you wouldn't have done. That. No, that wouldn't have done that. Wouldn't have done that. No, yeah. comically, you know, just the pie. But. Um, but no, for sure, I mean, there's so many elements of what you said that when you think about it, you know, it was a very different time. And there, I mean, I say there was what we call room to manoeuvre. You know, there were squats you could live in for nothing. There were empty railway arches where you could rehearse. Most of the pubs in Camden Town had function rooms, so you could get gigs pretty much every night of the week. And I think most of that particularly has gone. So the chances of being able to, to, to evolve a, a seven-piece band, I think, are much more limited nowadays, yeah. I mean, that just simple physical stuff, never mind the artistic element of, of what we were about at the time. Yeah, I think that's a shame, you know, but I think that's just, that's a general comment on, on the state of, you know, live music, you know, and, that, and unfortunately, why, as we've all commented on, you know, most of the people who make it now tend to be middle or upper class because they can afford, yeah. you know, well, that's to creatively, broadly, and afford that's to live. Yeah, London. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask. I mean, it leads on to how on earth have seven of you managed to stay together these years? You say that Mike left, but he came back, didn't he? I mean, you and you two. Who, who are the others who actually have the original band members? There's not many. John Bon Jovi's band, maybe. <laughs> That's a very good point. No, I don't know. I don't know many bands that have survived. And, uh, you know, f- for a number of reasons, I mean, we were friends, as you say, you know, in the book, uh, you, you know, from reading the book. So I think that helped a lot, you know, because when we did have the odd falling out or when Mike left, we were still in touch. It wasn't like, we, you know, you sort of fell apart and, and sort of hated each other. We didn't at all. And that sort of, that tolerance, I think, has got us through um, a lot of difficult times. But, and also not going to court, I think, helps. You know, not taking it out to court. That's a but, really good <laughs> idea not to, be, to do that. That <laughs> yeah. seems to be doing good uh, for most of these bands. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, but it's rare. It's, you're, you're rare beasts. The political climate has obviously had myriad twists and turns over your 40-plus year career. Almost 360, some would argue. Everything is worse now, some would uh, argue. But how does it feel having been a cultural signpost and a comfort blanket for many people along the way, given that your political allegiances were fairly obvious from the start? Yeah, I mean, you know, primarily left, you know. Yes. But, um, you know, that's something that came... I mean, you know, we were really young, as you say, and pretty naive. I'm very fortunate to then have gone on the two-time tour with the specials and selector and people who were slightly more enlightened, you know, and we learned a lot from that. And then it started to infuse the way we worked and the songs that we wrote, even though they weren't, you know, like you say, we were the best kids rather than the other ones. But, um, you know, and the P with a small, I mean, politics with a small P, I suppose you'd say, yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre because having been around for so long now, it's impossible to sort of comprehend even for myself, you know. The 80s still feel like 10 years ago to me, <laughs> not 40 years ago. Yes, it's quite... We were talking about that. We were saying, you know, 40 years from when we started, it was halfway through the Second World War, you know, it's as if 
yeah. You know, yeah. if you're listening to the Glenn Miller band, you know, if you sort of imagine that people are still listening to our music now. But, um, but no, and we've been through probably three or four recessions, which is a very odd thing. Um, you know, apart from having seen, you know, a myriad of different musical forms and bands come and go, um, we seem to get a bit more popular when there's a recession from some sort <laughs> or emotional damage going on. And I suppose because we are inherently optimistic people mm, and, mm. you know, we do try and enjoy ourselves. You know, our music has been about having a good time, even though we may have tried to get some more serious things into the songs. Yeah. Are you shy of espousing political views nowadays as a band, do you think? Because the political debate seems so polarised. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's become so black and white. Mm. I, mean, I, I mean, for me, a bit frightening, yeah. I mean, I'm not the only person I think thinks that. Um, you've just got these echo chambers, haven't you? And I meet a lot of people now who have, have absolutely no intention of engaging in the dialogue. <laughs> yeah. They've made up their minds, and that is a shame, I think. Yeah, really, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But we, you can sneak it in, as, as you do, as Madness. A lot of your songs are set in London still, maybe the one that doesn't exist anymore, the one that we were talking about earlier. You've got a song called Primrose Hill. I'm sure that would be a very different song now if you wrote a song entitled Primrose Hill. But you've got <laughs> We Are London, NW5. You've got songs that are about London that don't have London in the title. Are you addressing a different town? Are you trying to pull something back? or is there an acceptance that things are different but it's still the place that you love and that is your is a character almost it's like the eighth member of madness yes absolutely right yeah yeah i mean i'm not saying you know it's the best place in the world i mean mm. if i was living in paris i'd feel i'd be writing <laughs> songs about what i saw mm. sitting outside a cafe mm-hmm. in the same way that i do in london but of course i've brought, brought up bread in london and so it's got a very important part of my life but it's funny, yeah, because we wrote an, al- an album called The Liberty of Norton Vulgate, and we were talking about making, you know that, we were talking about making a concept album. And I said, what about making it, you know, the concept of that, you know, idea of London being like part of our lives and a friend almost. Mm. And Chris said, what do you think, Chris, the guitarist, what do you think all our flipping songs have been about? <laughs> yeah. So it was almost like an excuse to, 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 to write more about London. But... um. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, there's things that have changed and there's things I don't like. And, and I mean, primarily that the property's become such a sort of commodity mm-hmm. and rather than just somewhere to live. Mm-hmm. I think that's a real shame. I think that's really damaged the sort of soul of London. Yeah, but but still I love it and I couldn't be anywhere else. I mean, I've been in Whitstable for the last year or so just because of the pandemic. And I'm really looking forward to going back to London just because of the people, the energy and all that other stuff that you only get there yeah yeah well there's a few of us still fighting to keep it (laughs) less less developer like can you quickly tell us about your own memoir performances your solo your solo work in in a way you've got a life in the realm of madness tour next year this is your spoken word if people aren't familiar with it what's it about well i've done two now this is the second one actually oh the second not the third yeah 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 no well in fact yeah yeah anyway um, it's the second one. It just mm-hmm. it got curtailed. So I've had three goes, but in fact, I'm having another go at the second one without getting too confusing. Mm-hmm. But um, it's basically autobiographical, yeah. Uh, the first one was called My One, My, no, My Life Story, very yes. imaginatively. <laughs> so anyway, that was the sort of, that was the path we were going down. And then the second one continues, yeah. So the first one was kind of about how I got to being famous and on, on, the, on, the, on the paths that I crossed and, and crossroads that I fortunately went the right way down and then the second one is about getting famous and the sort of ridiculousness of being famous and all that comes with it so yeah I've got a keyboard player we play a few songs and I just tell stupid stories and and some funny and some sad yeah but I've heard they're pretty good and not just stupid (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot about your mum there's a lot about who um weirdly my mum used to know but that's another story um and a yeah. lot about your upbringing and actually it's the you know some of it's the vulnerable sugs isn't it some of it's the you coming out of the nutty boy image and um you are telling all yeah that's right well fortunately i wrote it with a very good friend of mine who's a journalist and mm-hmm. he was just saying you know i just think you could do something more interesting than stand up or just you know, funny anecdotes. Mm. And so we, we work very hard at a sort of narrative arc for, you know, one of the less pretentious words. <laughs> but uh, it does suit it, really. And yeah. he helped me a great deal, yeah, because it was things like my dad I'd never really of addressed. Course, yeah. He was a heroin yeah. addict and died 
what died when I was very young. Then I later discovered that she died a bit later than I originally right. thought. And you never met him. And, and that was the point of the thing is then I probably would have, you know, a couple of years I would have been famous and then possibly he would have got in touch with me. I don't know, but things like that. And so, yeah, I mean, it kind of, it starts a bit ridiculously with my cat dying on my 50th birthday, which was just most uh, sort of earth-shattering thing. It was my favourite cat. And apart from the trauma of having had my 50th birthday, um, it just seemed very unfair. But the cat then is the catalyst, without wanting to make uh, too many puns, yeah. for, for telling you. the story, you know, and, mm. and uh, you know, the, 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 the hurtful things as well as the funny things in, in one's life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's and you can still get tickets. It's on from February, isn't it? Just so we put that yes. in. We're going to play the Bullingdon Boys. Now, this was a surprise single, am I right, in 2019? Yes. Tell yes. us about this. Who might it be about then? <laughs> <laughs> Bullingdon. Mm, difficult one. <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, who is it? Who could it not be? About? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's Boris, I presume, is the main character in this one. Before he made a twat of himself over COVID even more. Why did you release this? Well, in fact, our keyboard player Mike Barton wrote this song, mm-hmm. and uh, it just made us all laugh. Yeah. I mean, it's it's you know it's got a serious undercurrent, obviously, which um, is the fact that you know the sort of ratio of people that come from Eton who end up in power one way or another is obviously completely un- outrageous. And then we just thought we'd make a bit of fun out of Boris while we were at it, yeah. So and I think it's a rather jolly way of sort of uh, letting off a bit of steam, as we say. Suggs is going to reappear with his favourite record of all time and his current favourite record, but first we will play the Bullingdon Boys from 2019. We are the Bullingdon Boys Move late at night, don't make much noise Up the stairs from the den Followed by our Batman These are the chosen few And these are coming through And we know just what to do It's Robin to rescue Eaton boys Get Back is an epic three-part, eight-hour documentary by Peter Jackson of those notorious Beatles rehearsal and recording sessions at Twickenham Studios that led to the controversial Let It Be film by Michael Lindsay Hogg. Have a listen to the trailer. We're talking about 14 songs we hope to get. I've got a feeling... How many have we already recorded good enough? None. None of us has had the idea of what the show's going to be. I've got a feeling. I would dig to play on stage, you know. Nobody else wants to do a show. I think we've got a bit shy. What could it be? Paul, something in the way she moves. What attracted me at all? Just say whatever comes in your head each time attracts me like a cauliflower until you get the word. There is a show to be had, you know, once we get over the nervousness. Take ten. Oh, yeah. I think we should forget the whole idea of this show. The meeting was fine, but then, you know, it all sort of fell apart in the end. So what's our next move? Maybe split George's instruments. But it's going to be such a comical thing, like, in 50 years' time. They broke up because Yoko sat on an amp. Sean... This is essentially a behind-the-scenes documentary about a behind-the-scenes documentary. <laughs> is it only directed at Beatles mega-fans, or is there wider interest? It's a good question, and you have addressed, obviously, the question of meta as well. Yes, it's very <laughs> How meta. much do we need to know about how much we need to know about how much we used to I, know? I wonder if in 30 years <laughs> there will be a documentary about Peter Jackson making this. <laughs> about us watching Peter Jackson making <laughs> It's a yes, periscope, about, isn't it? So goggle it's box. a telescope of uh, different experiences. I mean, I did write it down. Do you have to know the Beatles and know the Beatles to find the small interactions between four people that you don't necessarily know or never had an interaction with interesting do we have to understand who they are where they came from or can you come to it fairly cold Mm. and I think I I think you do have to be a fan I think you do for at least the first episode which we watched is almost three hours long yeah and while it is incredibly detailed about the creative process 
which I will never find not interesting. It also is about the asides. It's about we're watching people who on the outside world, not in a rehearsal studio, are so immensely famous that they wouldn't be able mm, to walk mm. a centimetre down the street. This is watching them relaxed. So you do have to have that understanding. I have to be frank and, and say I think it was too long. It's interesting, and it's interesting that they couldn't come up with any songs in the first few days. These are <laughs> they are really struggling. They're also well aware of the cameras. They're wearing brightly coloured jumpers and a different one every day. But it is excruciatingly in detail, and that's where I wonder if people will just drop off and maybe, you know, just lose interest. It's interesting. I'm not a Beatles fan, yes. and I enjoyed it. So, And if you had asked me beforehand... I would have definitely said not for me. Yeah. Um, over a period of four years, uh, director Peter Jackson went through 60 hours of footage and over 140 hours of audio using the same restoration techniques that he employed in uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, his World War Which One documentary. incredible documentary, yeah. yeah. How does it look and feel, the thing? Do you think it has made a difference to how fresh and sharp the images actually look? I don't know that it benefits from that. I don't know that the cleaning up of it does benefit, the colours being brighter, the skin looks smoother of everybody who's in there. They look, Interestingly, they do look like it's just after Christmas. They do like had a jolly good meal <laughs> all week and they've been at the booze and stuff. They look, they look sort of fattened up afterwards. Um, Paul McCartney know. looks hot. Like for the first time in history, <laughs> I found Paul McCartney hot. Well, they're all, I mean, bear in mind that they're, all, they're older than us, but in this moment, they're what, 26, 27? Mm, they're, mm. they're young men. Mm. Yeah. They're in the, almost, you might say, in the prime of life. I think they all look good. Mm. I think it's all surprising to me how good Ringo looks. You always think of him as the kind of the poor relation looks wise. Yeah, I think Paul McCartney is the only one whose hairstyle and clothes haven't aged as badly. I would, I would guess. That's why George was. He looks. (laughs) <laughs> he shaved his eyebrow halfway through through it. Did you notice that? I He's got notice. one eyebrow halfway through, which was weird. Um, Michael, it it is pretty fundamentally different in its narrative from the original Let It Be documentary, mm. which they didn't like at the time. Yeah. Does it prove the power of editing in that it tells a completely different story for the same material? What, uh, I didn't get the sense it had been edited at all. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was never going to end. <laughs> they had whatever it was, 80 hours of footage, and I was thinking, yeah, they've cut it down to a tight 79. Um, I loved the trailer of this. I really loved the trailer. I really liked because the Beatles are very slightly before my time, but I'm aware of them as a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really need that whole whatever it was, 45-minute primer on who they were and what they'd done. But the trailer gave you the sense that you were going to be sitting with these guys that you've known all your life and watching them interact and having a good time, which is what I wanted to see. I wanted to see them having a good time, getting on, being mates, and kind of subverting that narrative that, you know, everything was rubbish in the in their dying days and Yoko had ruined everything. I didn't I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to see them having a good time, being mates. Mm. And we tra- hope that. Though, well, the trailer promised that. And then the actual thing, I was thinking, sitting down, looking forward, looking forward to seeing these guys, who have, every one of whom is astronomically talented, just popping out this stuff. And you're going, oh, dear me. I mean, I've sat in studios with a bunch of blokes mm-hmm. doing this, and it's great fun. It's really great fun. But for the first hour, and then it's like, oh, can we go home now? Mm-hmm. Can we all have a sandwich now? And I, that's how I got to feel. I just got to feel like, Man, I love you. You're having, you know, you're talented boys. Every now and then they they would just kind of be, Paul especially, would be like clonking away with this weird strummy bass style that nobody else does. And then you would hear this little diamond that you know that is going to be on the other side of Abbey Road. And it was a kind mm. of, you know, they'd strung together all these little fragments. Well, that, that's what, yeah. you see, that's what I loved about it. There is a, there's a moment where basically he's, fiddling with his guitar and vocalising sort of in falsetto. And it Jackson just lets that run and run for mm. quite a long time. And from that emerges Get Back in pretty much its final form as he's doing it. And I just had a sense that it's like watching, I don't know, Rembrandt Doodle, that you're seeing really quite a, an ingenious musician in that process of just 
fiddling with something and see what they get out of it. I, look, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I think he's a spectacular talent in particular. I think they're all brilliantly talented. I didn't need to see quite so much of the process. It's in some of the process is interesting and some of the interaction is interesting. You know, I don't think it quite warrants that. So, sure, you were going to get Beatles completists, people who pour through take after take after take of Love Me Do One Anthology. They're going to love this and good for them. But it, it ain't for me. I would have really liked to have seen this boiled down to about 90 tight minutes. And I mm. think it would have been very interesting. You know, there is a natural narrative arc of coming from. And I think, you know, people like Yoko gets the blame for being this. To me, the villain of this is Michael Lindsay Hogg. And his fanciful, oh, let's go to, where did you want to go, Tunisia? Yeah. It's and just like, just like, you know, they had no space to just be themselves. They yeah. needed to but, just fart around. But there are interesting moments, and they do discuss this. So they talk about Mr. Epstein, they call mm. him, and it's been a year since he died. And I they, just thought he was that so was, present. That was yes. fantastic, yes. though, because yeah. they're saying we're lost without him. Yeah. He was our daddy. This is what mm. they're calling him. And they also then talk about the Beatles, quote, divorce. Yeah. Who's going to get the children, yeah. says John mm. Lennon. They are talking about the fact that they are disintegrating yeah. in front of their yeah, eyes yeah, yeah. and they're not really talking. They're only talking when they're in this environment. And there are points like that that are absolutely mesmerising when you see real people discuss... You know, what is going to be the demise yeah. of the Beatles? Yeah, um, when Paul McCartney says, I, I'm really scared about being yeah. the boss. We, yeah. Yes, which was um, absolutely... You know, here, but so, but if we're going to do a show in two weeks' time, someone kind yeah. of needs to grab yeah. it yeah. Because from the scruff of the neck. Those with, are the bits where it really sparkles. And then they talk about what's on last night's TV. It was actually seeing the process of people yeah. writing yeah. songs. As you say, I've been in studios and watched... It's interesting you should mention Yoko Hono because one of the strongest reactions mm. I had was when she first appears... Mm. And I have this visceral reaction to her. And then analyzing that in my head, I realized it's based on nothing. Yeah, she's it's just based on just by... this notion, mm. this misogynist notion, really. And a racist Inherited, notion, because yeah. she was before my time, that she's the cow that broke up the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, and I see, I see her sitting there quite quietly and quite lovingly. And I see the Beatles really... Uh, acting like quite a dysfunctional family and i thought if if i was in love with one of those four people mm. wouldn't wouldn't i be telling them maybe maybe the best thing to do would yeah. be to just but they've decided that themselves yeah. I mean, you could say that the harry krishna split up the split up that dude start in the again. Corner, yeah yeah, yeah. You could say i love the harry krishnas <laughs> that george has bought <laughs> on the first day there was one harry krishna sitting in the corner <laughs> doing nothing but by day three there's two <laughs> i'm hoping that by hour eight there's going to be 20 harry it was krishna like in that the corner. scene from the buzz <laughs> you know isn't it where, where she's they she split up the cigarette yeah. and you see one crow <laughs> behind her and then by the time the shot opens up it's, the entire a wonderful yeah. analogy. the entire jungle gym is full of them just but, but also you see Yoko and Linda at one point just having a lovely chat yeah which is not a thing that you necessarily I mean that's not part of the myth not part of the myth at all that they seem to be getting along fine and everybody's getting along fine and it's cool and I just you know like I say there's a lot of good stuff in there but if you're panning for gold, you don't necessarily keep all the dirt. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I'm not a Beatles fan by mm. any stretch, and I don't particularly Me enjoy neither. music documentaries. And I really liked this. Mm. I, I mm. mean, I I liked... There were lovely moments of them just jamming other tunes from Dylan yeah, yes. to Elvis yes. and folk and blues. I found the sheer material pouring out of them and the stuff they rejected mm. really interesting um, the, the process of writing lyrics, if you can call it that, yeah. where they just put anything that rhymes well, yes, in it's and like tried y- for Yesterday signs. used to be called scrambled eggs. You know, yes. They used to just make up nonsense. But also the other – it's not necessarily a revelation because I think a lot of people know this, but Ringo is such a good drummer. Mm. You can be the best band in the world. If you've got a bad drummer, yeah. you're screwed. Yeah. Mm. And the opposite is true. If you've got a great drummer, you can get away with murder. That Often you hear them, you know, like George or Paul will be kind of just doodling around on something – I mean, like, yeah, this might be something. And then Ringo's sort of listening, mm. and then he starts up, and the thing 
pops to life straight yeah. away. He's just a beautiful drummer. That's what I felt as well. They are their own producers by this point. Mm. Yeah. These songs are fully formed once they are finished. They don't have to be in a studio and then have the George Martin or someone yeah, else yeah, yeah. tinker with them. Their ear is so good by this point. And Paul McCartney's ear, I was actually quite astounded by that, the mm. musicianship, when it was not just the hours and yeah. hours of music. But that's the thing. You, you could argue that by this time they'd outgrown George Martin. Mm. Yeah, but I, they I had not right. outgrown Brian Epstein. Mm. That. You said earlier about the Ferdinand as his kind of father mm. figure, and he created the scaffolding around them, which enabled them to remain quite childlike and therefore creative and playful. You know, through the mm. Revolver Sergeant Pepper years, all of a sudden, pop! You've got to be grown ups. Paul's ha- having a go at stepping up, but it's you know yeah, leads to resentment. Amazing. It doesn't really work. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only other moment I need to mention is that that you know with what's going on with. Um, channel crossings and mm. immigration at the moment, there was an incredibly poignant moment where yeah. they were writing Get Back as a sort of um, song poking fun at racists, mm. basically, as in get back to your own country. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of uh, sort of footage and newspaper clippings of all the Enoch Powell stuff. And that really hit me how now it is how relevant it is how it is exactly the same fucking debate we're having today yeah. um and that was a bit disheartening but so well, yeah. so there you go and at the same time you had george talking in almost worshipful tones about clapton who mm. oh yes within about what it's 9 months it of that it didn't take long did it no yeah yeah, yeah. Interesting. So uh, two thumbs down, I'm guessing. No, no, no. Oh, no. It's actually a medium no, thumb now. Okay, all I, right. I, I Mine is a firm thumbs yours up. Yours is a firm macker <laughs> thumbs up. <laughs> I have to say, it even is. as a non-fan, I'm really looking forward mm-hmm. to the next couple I'm, of episodes. I'm going to watch it all. I just feel like I shouldn't have to spend quite so long watching mm-hmm. it. Get Back is being released by Disney Plus over three days with the last episode dropping on Saturday the 27th of November. Regular listeners know that our esteemed panel always bring in a track for your delight. Michael Moran, it's your turn. What right. have you got for us today from your battered briefcase? Well, it's brand new mm-hmm. and it's 50 years old. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a actually a really interesting story. So I'm very fond of a band called The Meters who mm-hmm. are from New Orleans. I keep thinking that everyone's heard of them, but you've, know, you've heard them because they've been sampled so many times. They're on so many records. But they're actually not as well-known as I tend to think they are. But they are the absolute perfect funk quartet. And they're like a little clockwork. Everything locks together. People use the word effortless a lot around them. It's not effortless. These guys have really put the the effort in. But there was a period when the, the, um, the meters lost their record deal in about 1971. And for about six months... They're just doing other stuff. And the guitarist, who I like to pronounce his name, Leo Nocentelli, I don't quite know how he would say it, Mm -hmm. decided he would make an album of his own, which is kind of influenced by, I'd guess, James Taylor was around at the time. It certainly feels like Bill Withers' Terry Callier to me, and the kind of soulful singer-songwriter thing. And there's some confusion about whether he'd intended it as a solo album or whether it's songs, you know, demos for other people to then pick up and take. It's a remarkable recording, which, you know, he had, I think, the Meters Rhythm section, Alan, um, Alan Two sets on keyboards, beautiful playing. This one track, Riverfront, really stuck out to me as being just gorgeous. But then he stuck it away uh, in storage because the Meters got another deal really shortly afterwards. And then it goes from being a, a tale a bit like Get Back to more like Storage Hunters, where the recording <laughs> gets shoved in a storage unit, forgotten about, mm-hmm. auctioned off as rubbish, this crate digger, some, one of the guys to do with the Beastie Boys, picked it up. Mm-hmm. And now it's been released okay. 50 years after it was recorded. Oh, and it's a beaut. OK, let's give it a listen. Riverfront by Leo Nocentelli. It's gonna have to do. Now, 
Ridley Scott's star-stuffed and much-awaited House of Gucci is out this weekend. With turns from Adam Driver, Lady Gaga, Al Pacino, Jared Leto and more, the film promises to explore family, loyalty, money bloody revenge and really expensive belts like never before. Film boffin Linda Marrick and I have seen it all two and a half hours. Here's the trailer to get us in the mood. I've been a Gucci all my life. Your name is in the history books. Paolo, you are Gucci. You need to dress the part. It's chic. She needs new blood. It's time to take out the trash. You're my family. So am I. You picked a real firecracker. She's a handful. So set this up for us, Linda. What's the story behind House of Gucci? So it's a story about... I actually was not aware of it at all. Uh, to my shame, <laughs> because it's a very well-known story about the wife of uh, Maurizio Gucci, one the heir to the Gucci fortune and the fashion house, who uh, in, I think, the early uh, 2000s hired a hitman to kill her husband. This tells a story from the beginning of their relationship till the end of their relationship, which culminated in the the disaster. I don't think I'm giving anything away. I, I don't think, think it's you are. a very well-known we story. <laughs> <laughs> which I am, um, to my shame, I didn't know. She so. hires a hitman, doesn't she? Or two hitmen. Um, this is obviously a plum role for Lady Gaga. She's not totally top billing because there are a lot of Oscar nominees and winners nudging her for it, but really it is her her film. How did yeah. you feel that she was? And apparently she stayed in character for a long time during the <laughs> making I- of this. My my problem with this film, I'm going to start by by saying Lady Gaga, I think, was fine, but I felt like none of the actors knew what kind of film they were in. I think tonally, it's it's a mishmash of things, and I think Lady Gaga thought she was in this kind of campy, over the top sort of stylized family drama. The rest of the cast thought they were in, in a comedy. So- <laughs> Adam Driver was the only person playing it for serious. I mean, I can't fault her. It's not really her fault. It's the the script is not great, and I think there was a lack of direction. So I can't completely. And I really love Lady Gaga. I love her music. I've always been a fan of her. So I'm not going to be too harsh. But I didn't find her performance convincing in my opinion (laughs) how did you feel you say adam driver may be the one who's sort of got the tone right he's wonderfully understated and he looks the part he looks awkward and yet rich and yet troubled and yet you know he's intelligent and yet he doesn't seem to know quite how to handle things he is guided by other people would it been simpler if if they'd all acted like him, how to say it? I, yeah, I think so. But I, that's the, you said. He seems he looks he looks regal. I think that's what's what mm. I love about he's a serious man. He's mm. a serious person who can sometimes play it the silly part. I mean, we've seen him in in Girls, where he he's completely uh, you know mental in that. But I, I what I liked about him in this is the ease at which he sort of embodied that character mm. i found that flabbergasting I, I honestly that just tells me that he's one of the greatest actors at the moment in hollywood i believed he was mm. marito gucci i mm-hmm. believed he he was that person and the script is obviously very sympathetic towards him i think it tries its best to be a little bit more sympathetic towards her as well in by the end we all know who sort of the the, the hero of the piece is. Yes, yeah, and we do. Maurizio, really. And as we say, the film promises a lot. It promises glamour because we have Gucci. It also mm. promises this idea and very much a Hollywood idea of what Italian living is. They drink coffee. They are very passionate. They do all the things that Italians are meant to do. We're seeing it from that lens. Is mm. the film dealing with these big issues? As we're saying, there's revenge, there's murder, there's passion. Is yeah. it dealing with that or is this... What I felt and what I'm really getting to is is the film, just the story is not big enough. The story is very simple, is a a scorned woman gets her revenge. Is there enough to it in that way? I think the story is big enough. I do. However, what I think is that the script 
wasn't up to the sort of the story. Do you know what I mean? It's not as big as the story. It was. It needed something a little bit stronger, and I felt like. I mean, you can make a fantastic story out of this uh, if if you really, you know, had a really good script. And I just felt like there wasn't, a, it felt at times like it was like a telenovela, you know, mm-hmm. like it's people a... sort of slamming doors. And I didn't believe them, anybody's motivations. And I'm sorry to say. Is this something that that showrunner Ryan Murphy, who is enormously successful about making real stories into its series, the assassination of Gianni Versace obviously comes to mind, which was beautifully crafted in terms of plot. Is this something that could have been be- done better by Ryan Murphy or in a different format, do you think? I wouldn't usually agree because I'm not a big fan of, uh, uh, of Ryan Murphy, as many will know. <laughs> But uh, in this case, I think I, I agree with this. Uh, I think in this case, this did need to be a, 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 a sort of a kind of either either a mini mini series or at least a three like a three hour long mini series type thing. If you cast Jeremy Irons in a movie and you don't get much out of him, I just find that really quite insulting, to be honest, because he is fantastic in this, but we don't see him enough. Whenever he was on, I just wanted I wanted it to carry on because he he really manages to embody that brilliant character of the sort of the old fading film star who thinks of himself as royalty as opposed to this uh, sort of social climbing woman <laughs> who's come to take his yes. his son. Like I'd love to be more sort of more positive about the film, and I think there are bits in it that are really good, like. The Adam Driver performance is an Oscar-winning performance, but other than that, I just I thought it was quite boring, to be honest. It was a bit dull. Yes, and I think that's what they did with the story: is they turned something interesting into something that's step by step. It is a shame because the elements are all there. That's what we're saying. The, yeah. the acting talent is there. The story is there. There is some glamour in it. There's not enough fashion to me. You know, there was one one yeah. nod to Versace. They're not talking about the fashion world at all. And the fashion world yeah. is notoriously crazy, full of really interesting people and totally bizarre. Um, none of that gets in. But um, are you saying you'd recommend it? Oh, definitely. I think go and see it. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, I, like when I sort of shared my print review or on social media, even though I wasn't very sort of positive about it, I had loads of people replying saying, "Oh, thanks, your review really made me want to see it." And I think, I think a, even a negative review can sometimes do that. So people should not be scared of negative review. I think this is this is a film that's going to do really well. And Lady Gaga has like a huge following. Adam Driver's got a massive following, as does Jared Leto, and I think it's going to do well. Definitely go and see it. There's a lot to get from it. I, whether it is one of one of the best films of the year i absolutely not <laughs> but you know all right a warmish recommendation yeah lovely warmish, warmish. thank you linda <laughs> Now, we promised you that he'd be back with his favourite record of all time. And here it is. Suggs, what have you chosen and why? We've chosen Waterloo Sunset. So, you know, you were talking to me earlier about the things that have influenced me. Yeah. And Ray Davis, for sure, is one of the biggest. I've read a lot of people who've said that it's their favourite song, but they would never dream of covering it because it's just got an atmosphere, apart from the fantastic melody and lyrics that you just can't capture. But anyway, yeah, it's just a sensational track. I really love it. It's got something magical and ethereal that you just can't put your finger on. Hawkeye is the latest offering by Disney Plus in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Jeremy Renner reprises his role as Clint Barton, a.k.a. Hawkeye, who, through a series of gaffes and coincidences, finds himself in a sort of guardian-slash-mentor role to Hayley Steinfeld's Kate Bishop, his number one fan, and pretty handy with a bow and arrow herself. It's a limited miniseries that takes place over six nights in a glitteringly Christmassy New York City. Let's get a flavour. This is the first Christmas we've had together in years. I love you guys. I'm making up for some lost time. Authorities are wondering if the masked vigilante who terrorized the city's underworld is back. The past is caught up with me. Should we be worried? No, no, it's nothing. I'll be home for Christmas. I promise. It's the most 
one. I wore this suit. I made a whole lot of enemies. You're a Hawkeye. Who the hell are you? Mike, why should anybody care about a series revolving around chronically miserable Hawkeye, <laughs> who is, let's face it, the least good Avenger? He is. I grant you he is the least good Avenger. Um... And Jeremy Th- Renner does, for all the world, look like a thumb with a wig. But, <laughs> but those things said, I personally really like the grounded aspect of the Marvel Universe. Like, so Eternals, with its called Chariots of the Gods narrative, it's not for me. That wasn't it wasn't me. And also, Shang-Chi even was a bit fanciful with the dragons and whatnot. I like the idea that this is just street... You know, it's kind of hinting at a reprise of Daredevil, which was my... Mm-hmm. All-time favourite. Mm-hmm. I love that show. And I'm kind of hoping that Kingpin will come back at some juncture. But it's it's New York at Christmas time, so what's not to love? You can just watch that and it gets you in the mood and you're thinking, oh, I might have a mince pie now. And there is this, as you say, this kind of like pseudo-father-daughter mentor role. We, you know, we open on the Battle of New York from 2012, but yeah. seeing from a street-level perspective. And it's amazing. So the series puts a bunch of familiar characters and their storylines in a bag and kind of shakes it mm. in the way The Walking Dead often does. Yeah. You know, where you have stuff that happened to a different character happened to this one. So Peter Dog is now rescued by Kate. Yeah. It is Eleanor Bishop who survives as sole guardian. The tracksuit mafia are like characters from Home Alone 2. Yes, bro. And are sort of comic relief rather than danger. Will this annoy the comic fans, do you think? Or is it a way to keep keep it interesting well, for them I mean, so the, that they don't know exactly what storyline they're looking yeah, for? Yeah. I mean, the, yes, as you point out, so this is reinventing the Matt Fraction run in the same way that, you know, Age of Ultron reinvented Age yeah. of Ultron. It's always that element of remix and making it a bit screen friendly, which I think makes sense for both those reasons. One, people who've lived the Matt Fraction run will find something new that it'll be worth them watching. And two... It just, it operates, it's very low stakes, you know, you've, so these Disney Plus series, you know, WandaVision was quite mad. And I, it was possibly my favourite mm. of those. And Loki was quite out there and sort of Doctor Who-ish. Falcon Winter Soldier was quite grounded, but you had the, the opportunity for super heroics because one of the guys could fly every now and then when things got dull, he would jump out of an aeroplane. This has none of that. This just has Christmas. Mm. <laughs> but I am so happy to be spending whatever it's going to be, six hours or five and a bit hours in Marvel Universe at Christmas time. I don't really care. I don't care that it's no low stakes. I don't care that nothing much will happen. Some people have said, oh, it's a problem that nothing is happening. I'm cool with it. I'm mm. just very happy to be around those people for a little, you know, mulled wine. Yeah. I'm for it. It's, <laughs> it's so me. The two things I really like in the world are Marvel Comics and Christmas. So they've got me. Sean, over the years, Andrew has forced you to watch dozens of these things. You're a seasoned Marvel widow. What did you make of a superhero with no superpowers? I felt that maybe it was a Marvel too far. The Marvel <laughs> Universe can stop. There is a boundary, surely. What I find interesting is that Marvel seems to be so much based on the Greek narrative, which we are used to. It's a fairy tale, it's a nursery rhyme, it's something that is solid that then repeats itself and does variations of itself. That in itself is interesting. However, the man with the bow and arrow... And the woman with the bow and arrow may be just stretching it too far for me. I watched it with my son and we have watched a lot of Marvel. So he has also helped me into the universe. But we did feel, I just, that maybe it's played too straight. Maybe it is too straight. There's something that is lacking the fun of it. And I know they've twisted things around and some of the tropes are different and some of the characters are now doing this and there are new characters. Mm. And yet I didn't think it was as playful as it could be. Whereas Loki, you know they're having fun writing it. You yeah. know they're just going, oh, then we do this. And then is, we it, this. Um, is it maybe, do you think, with its less sort of thre- threatening mm. colour palette and, you know, taking place over Christmas, having a plucky young adult mm. at its centre, is it a sort of Disney Marvel crossover beginning to happen? Mm. Are they I think preparing things for it. their younger, sort of more traditional... The disney of it, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. is what... Yeah, and it, say there is less fun. It does seem more computer-generated. Oh, this... We'll target this age group. We've marketed to this age group. It does feel like that. And that takes the sort of joy out of it. Michael, the first episode featured 
Rogers the Musical. <laughs> now that was oh, a that good. Was that was brilliant. a good. I could, the big number and displays. I could do this all, all day. day. <laughs> and the showrunners actually brought in the creative team behind the musical Hairspray to write it. Now, did it, did it tickle you? Oh man, I was actually watching this, thinking, <laughs> what I really want is a secret seventh episode that's just Rogers the Musical. I agree, this is the strongest bit. <laughs> because it's like the, the MCU's Hamilton, isn't it? It kind of retells <laughs> history. And certainly Katniss appears in it from the Hunger well, Games. Yeah, she's in the street, like, yeah. What's going on? But, you know, and then and you can see Hawkeye on the one hand railing against the fact that Ant-Man shouldn't have been in there. <laughs> and the other hand, you see his little PTSD kicking in. I also thought it was... A pleasing touch of realism that he's got this hearing damage from years mm. of combat, mm. which, you know, I don't know whether it will actually become a plot point, whether they'll forget about it, it becomes inconvenient in future episodes. But it's interesting that it's there. One other thing I liked was that black market auction of Avengers merch, as yes. well, Avengers things, that where there is becoming more and more meta. We do know that the Avengers are now a thing. It's not a secret. Yes, yes, thing. yes. Everybody yes. knows about That's them. That's riffing on them. Between the music There were some that, ideas, actually, yes, yeah. that were extremely good, but I just don't think that they were pulled out enough because we've got the Christmas story and the yeah. teen story. Hawkeye suffers from imposter syndrome, basically. What average man wouldn't yeah. if they spent a decade sandwiched between Chris Hemsworth's Thor yeah. and Chris Evans's Captain America. I mean, the musical is a cheeky reference to the fakeness of it all and the hilarious sequence that takes place at a live-action role-plays event. Is that, do you think, the series strength? He's sort of everyman quality. He's, they seem to have taken his grumpiness yeah, and turned it into strong, die-hard why won't you just let me spend Christmas with my family? Yes, there is definitely that. You know, I'm, I'm getting too old for this. Yes. But you know, there was a there was a glimpse of his his fatherly nature in Age of Ultron, where he pep talks Scarlet Witch into being an Avenger mm. and coming out of that door and trashing all those robots. Now, this is clearly an extension of that. That's his nature because if he doesn't have that. He's just a guy with a bow and arrow. I mean, what's the point of a bow and arrow in a world where even the Winter Soldier's got a like a light machine gun? It's madness. Uh, not the bad. <laughs> um, you know, it's this this character is inherently bonkers. Kate's new possible father-in-law is the swordsman, mm. who is, you know, again maybe and, we think. Well, he's got the same name. Yes, and he's bought a sword. So, but like I said, they've mixed everything yes, else. That is they've true. mixed everything that is else true. up. So I, I'm not, I'm not sure. But uh, uh, and I, 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 I'm I, very interested in him. Yeah, and Tony Dalton is a really great casting choice. As is uh, Vera Farmiga as uh, Eleanor. Yeah, um, I'm very interested in their story arc. I I thought it was funnier and lighter than most offerings. Yes, I I thought it was. Age and season appropriate. That's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to have something that doesn't involve a character, a Marvel character at the center, suffering some huge, you know, psychological breakdown and existential yeah. question. It's just, it's yeah, light. Yeah, it's nice. It's, it's, you know, it is a bit fluffier than some of them. You're right. Mm. Um, and it's a nice change of tone. And this is something I've also often thought is that the the genius of the Feige Marvel Empire is that they've created a universe in which they can tell very many different stories. You know, mm. they could do a musical practically. You know, they can they could do a rom com in this universe and it would work because the universe is so crafted, we understand its rules. Yeah. The first two episodes of Hawkeye are available on Disney Plus now. The series will culminate in a Christmas special finale on the twenty second of December. And I will be reenacting the entirety of Rogers the Musical in my front room the following day. Excellent. We always ask our guests for a music recommendation. And Suggs, it's your turn. What's your current yes. choice of tune that you've brought in? I've chosen Salt. I came across them completely by accident. I heard them on uh, Six Music and it just hit me straight away. Really strange, eclectic mixture of modern kind of beats with... Philadelphia strings sometimes, but not always. A very strange mixture of different things. Every track that they do is, is different from the one before. But great lyrics, really sort of righteous kind of vibes and uh, and different singers. And Anyway, I found out it's a collective from North London. Yay! <laughs> it's a collective of producers who get together to do this project. And I just think it's great. 
And the track I've chosen is London Gangs, which I think is a great example of uh, what I've just talked about. Fantastic. We'll give it a listen. London Gang Salt, and we will add it to our rolling playlist, as we will Waterloo Sunset, which you can get on your info on your podcast app. Thank you so much to Suggs. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a You've pleasure. been great. We could talk for hours. We yeah, could talk for days. Really it's wonderful, isn't it? It's really a shame really it always could. has to be half an hour or so. But thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Are you going to eat what's Whitstable's oysters, isn't it? I'm presuming you eat oysters every day now. Yeah, absolutely oysters. But it's been a disaster because, of course, you know, you've read about the yeah. southern water oh, having chucked yeah. 75,000 million tonnes of turds into the sea. Mm. Um, the oysters took a bit of a tumble, but they're back now. They're back. Yeah, the Whitstable oysters. So that's one of my favourites. Yes. Wonderful. Well, enjoy them and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you to Suggs for your epic musical choice there. And we're at the end of the show. It's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we stand on Waterloo Bridge, gaze into the horizon ahead, with a warm glass of white wine from the Royal Festival Hall? (laughs) Michael, what's your closing time chat? Well, this week I've been interested in the the discussion around running running orders, you know, for albums. Yes. I wonder Uh, why. I wonder why. (laughs) Well, because Adele, who's... um, Flavour of the flavour of the moment in the sense mm. that you can't switch on any television program without her popping up in it. Uh, it's like, and now it's over to Adele for the weather. We had an <laughs> almost <laughs> physical fight well, yes. last week because I, I adore Adele. Well, I've got nothing. I adore. I've got yeah, nothing but she's been meddling her. again, isn't she? Meddling with Spotify. <laughs> but carry on, Michael. Well, she. I mean, the thing is, this is you know, I think. If I can just peer behind the curtain for a minute, I imagine this was all done behind the scenes by lawyers months ago. Of course, yeah. But then the other day she tweeted, I don't really want the, the shuffle button on my on my album on, on Spotify. And then seemingly moments later, they went, ah, anything for you, Adele. Mm. And off it goes. And now it's greyed out. And, you know, my contention is that every album is a concept album, with the possible exception of the, some greatest hits albums, mm-hmm. that... There is, when you make a record, you have in your mind, as you're making it, you have this sense of how it's going to, the ebb and the flow, Mm. you know, Mm. how it's going to work. Sequencing. Yeah. And if it's a compilation album, if you know, or if it's a playlist that you've made for yourself, fine, you know, it can be on shuffle if that's what you want. I personally, when I build little playlists on my Spotify or iTunes or whatever, I still have this sense of a story being told, even though they're by different people. And I'm all, you know, I don't think you should be restrictive and say, oh, no, it should be switched off because that's just silly. If people want to use it, people want to use it. But I think people should avoid using it if they can, because, as I say, every album is a concept album. I agree with you in principle, but as a listener, I have the right to listen to things as I want them. Oh, yeah. What is, you know, what was home taping? Home taping was taping the singles off the radio and choosing music. the things. It's killing music, Sean. <laughs> Spotify that killed, killed music. music. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we're allowed to listen to whatever the hell we like in whatever order we like. Of course, it's a concept album. Most artists do do that, but that's part of their job and she's already got paid for that. So mm. that's fine. She's not going to notice me then plucking out or not entirely, any of the songs. I entirely agree. <laughs> but what I'm saying is I think it's just it's good that she's brought it into the conversation. I suppose. You know, and in the same way, if you listen to that second side of Abbey Road... It's just, it's a load of fragments that they'd knocked together mm. in that fractious Let It Be session. And then Paul and George Martin have assembled it into this kind of yeah, mad yeah. doily of creativity that's, that flows. If those tracks were discrete tracks, would you put it on shuffle? Be madness. And not the band again. Again, not the band. Good point. <laughs> Alex, what's your closing time chatter? I started last week um, binging on... American horror story um, the series Mm. and I have no idea as a huge horror fan why this had escaped my attention (laughs) I had this weird notion in the back of my head that it was a little bit teenagey and Mm, somehow not horror enough and not dark enough and I could it couldn't be further from the truth the first uh, uh, we we watched the first season, Murder House, and we're now into Asylum, and they are insane uh, as scripts and incredibly dark and really scary. And very pretty. And gory at times and really beautiful The, the imagery is very kind of... And my God, the performances. Mm. I mean, Jessica Lang is 
astonishing across, especially across the two series, where she plays a completely different character. Yeah. So this sounds a good counterpoint to Hawkeye, <laughs> where yeah. you've gone for something dark, Alex. Yeah. After watching that, sounds good. I've not seen them, so do you recommend? Uh, really? Them? Oh yeah. my goodness! Well, I like I said, I'm only halfway through the first, yeah. the second series, mm-hmm. but what I've seen so far is excellent. So let's have Absolutely a horror excellent. film. Yeah, but it's because they're discrete the series of discrete stories. It's a repertory company mm. that keeps coming back in different roles. So interesting. Mm. It's just such a good group of actors as well. Thumbs up. What's yours? Talking Pictures are now launching a streaming service yes. next week. Hello. Okay. This is Hello Christmas. This okay. is what I okay. have been waiting yeah. for. Maybe it's long overdue. Maybe it was exciting tuning in at one o'clock to watch whatever swinging 60s film that I'd missed. But it's really, I, th- I think this is fantastic news. Um, and I will be, I'll just probably just have a Talking Pictures Christmas mm. of on-demand, wonderful films that they do show. I do love the way that they say, and they have to now preempt beforehand, some of the opinions Yes. Some of the views. Are a bit not really, offensive not really considered yeah. these days. And um, smoking. <laughs> and we know that. We understand that. And we can be horrified by it. But um, as a time capsule and as the wonderful small family run business that Talking Pictures is, I think this is wonderful news. Yeah, and I was really cheered by this. It's great. A, it's such a good channel. Yeah. 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 That would be my only trigger warning on Get Back, actually. You just mentioned it. I haven't smoked a cigarette in seven oh. years. And yeah. boy, it made me want to really? light up. Oh, oh, boy, did it make me want to light up. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much to the indomitable Suggs and Linda Marrick and Michael Moran. Thank you very much. From Sean and myself and producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofronievich, thank you for listening. We will see you next week. The Culture Bunker was written and presented by Sean Pattenden with Alexandreou. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. Culture Bunker.